Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Turn with me, if you will, to John 15. Pick back up in our, our study of the Gospel of John. John 15, beginning in verse 18, reading through chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We come looking to your word for guidance, 
for promises, for your truth, um, Father, for things that will keep us from falling. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would speak through me, Father, that these words would be yours and, and not mine only. Father, would you use your word to strengthen your people, to encourage them, and Father, even to call others unto yourself who do not know you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been terrified to do something? I don't know, maybe playing organized sports or having a baby or getting married. (laughs) Different things just absolutely terrify us. Typically when that happens, you go find somebody who's been there, done that, and give you a little help and, and guidance along the way, give you some ideas. Jesus is kind of doing that same thing with his disciples, but he's talking about what's going to happen after he leaves. And they're pretty scared. He's told them twice in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. But here in our passage today, he says that their hearts are grieved, so clearly they haven't listened very well. And He knows what lies ahead of them, and he's trying to warn them about many of the pitfalls. And I kind of liken this discourse to, say, a, a coin. You ever, like, stared at a coin? Maybe I'm the weird one in the room, but you look at a coin, and you notice the stamp of the head on the one side and the markings where it was minted in the year, and you flip it over, and you got the tail. It's kind of what Jesus has done here. The first half, he's been very focused on the good things, promises that one day he's going to come back, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, his commands to abide in his love and to love one another. Today, he flips that coin over and he makes a hard change to hatred and hostility and persecution. But he's assuming that his listeners will be in a community of love where they can rely on each other and encourage each other. And he gives an explicit reason for these warnings in chapter 16, verse 1, kind of right in the middle of our our text today. He said, so that you will not fall away. In men's study, we're going through 1 John, and you see John say this again. He tells his readers there to not be surprised that the world is going to hate them. But yet, so often we are very surprised that the world hates us. Jesus is trying to anchor the hearts of these 11 before the events of, that are just mere hours away. And as our great high priest, who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, as Romans says, has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus understood their very temptations at this moment and in the moments to come. He knew the fear that would grip their heart that night. He knew that as the good shepherd, he would be struck and the sheep would scatter. But he also knew that these 11 would not completely fall away. Like I said, they all scattered. Jesus, Peter even denied that he never knew Jesus. So what does he mean by fall away? Obviously, it does not mean that they're going to lose their salvation. Um, that justification is a, a one-time event. It's not something that you have to be re-justified every time we sin. It's kind of this weird position between the already and the not yet. You'll hear that phrase thrown around a lot. Luther kind of explained, or not kind of, Luther explained justification with this analogy. He actually went all the way back to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. There he says, My beloved is mine, 
and I am his. And he, he explained it like this. He said the gospel is the story of a romance between, or the marriage of Christ as bride, the bridegroom, and the bride, the church. It's the story of a great and wealthy king with a very debt-ridden prostitute. And her debts are so great that there's nothing that she can do to deal with this debt, much less imagine herself even being queen. But the king woos her and marries her despite all of this. And at the wedding, she says to him, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I give to you. And all that she has to offer are her debts and her shame. But this king is so great and so wealthy that he deals with those debts by his wealth. He doesn't even feel him leave his bank account. And the king says to her, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I give to you. Now, by that declaration from his mouth, she is immediately queen. The entire kingdom is hers. But she doesn't yet know courtly manners. If you ever seen the movie My Fair Lady, especially at the horse race scene, you can go watch it. There's a disjointedness between her status as queen and the courtly etiquette. She'll learn it, but as of yet, she doesn't know them. Christ, our great bridegroom, has taken all of our sin, all of our debt, and our judgment, and buried those with him in the grave. And he's given us his righteousness and his blessed status. She, the church, is at one and the same time the sinner and righteous by being in Christ. So, what Jesus is talking about is a slip in courtly etiquette to keep the analogy going. Peter has truly repented, or he will truly repent, and he wants others to know that same forgiveness and righteousness that he found in Christ. You see in the book of Acts, he later became the leader of the a leader of the church in Jerusalem, a biblical author, and even a martyr for the one he denied. Whereas Judas went out and hanged himself in utter despair, afraid that Jesus could never forgive him. Now, moving back in our passage to the beginning there in chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus warned them of hostility and persecution in order to prepare them for sudden temptations that are going to arise. We often think of persecution as something that we can prepare for. We psych ourselves up for that day when we are arrested and put on trial for our faith. But more often than not, persecution comes as a surprise. When we feel that urging of the Holy Spirit to talk with that coworker or family member or friend or stranger, we fear man, we clam up and don't say anything. We're afraid of what they'll think of us. We're afraid of what they might say to us. We're afraid of the hatred of the world. We should fear the one who can save the soul more than the one who can kill the body. See, if we truly follow Jesus, we will undoubtedly experience opposition from the world. Just go over to Acts chapter 4. Shortly after Jesus' ascension, Peter and John are arrested for proclaiming Christ. And in this portion of Jesus' dialogue here in John 14 through 16, he's warning his disciples that persecution and trials will be a part of their lives as true disciples. And throughout Christian history, a lot of people have taught that 
trials and persecution and things like that are a sign of God's punishment. Jesus is giving us the exact opposite here. It's actually the reward for being a faithful follower, taking up our cross and following him. We're not promised to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We serve a suffering Savior. But Jesus isn't telling them this bad news to discourage them. As the good shepherd, he wants to warn his sheep of what is coming so that they're not surprised. He's giving them encouragement to stand firm in the day of trouble. When the world and Satan and our own flesh are screaming for us to deny Christ and take the easy way out, Christ says to stand firm and not fall away. While Jesus' warnings definitely have the ideas of a major test of faith, such as a trial or, or even being outcast, he's also warning us of everyday tests that we so often fail. So are we willing to lose friends for Jesus because we live missionally? Even this week, as you go back home for Thanksgiving, are we willing to be ostracized by our own family because we proclaim Christ? Who's more important to us? Christ or our friends and family? Many times we take this hatred and, and this hostility personally. But notice who Jesus says they hated first. The world hated him first. And if we looked like him, we can expect the world to treat us just like they treated him. What if the world tolerates us? What if it accepts us as we are? Perhaps we need to look a little deeper at our lives and understand why they love us. If we truly believe that Christ died to save sinners and that those who die without Christ are condemned to everlasting punishment, Shouldn't we be boldly proclaiming that Jesus saves and can even save those who would rather see us dead? Friends, we are called by God to proclaim Christ to the nations. He's chosen to use words to draw people to himself. We should be challenging the lives of those around us with the gospel, not in an unloving or obnoxious way, Persecution and hostility will come just fine without us doing that. We should be gently, persuasively teaching those around us about the Christ who died to redeem people from sin and calling them to repent and turn to Jesus. Like I said, the world loves its own. It has no problem with those who do what they want. The world says, you do me, I'll do me. You find your truth and do it, and I'll do my truth. And so long as you don't get in my way of letting me do what I want, we're fine. Just don't come meddling into my life and tell me how to live it. The world is perfectly happy with those who allow it to remain in the status quo. But Jesus warned those, warns that those who love him, those who willingly die to self, take up their cross and follow him, will be hated by the world. Christian, does the world hate us? Does it hate you, me? If it doesn't, maybe we should examine our own hearts to first be sure that we are not of the world. If the world can tolerate us, are we true disciples or are we just another Judas, following him for years 
only to later walk away from Jesus, the perfect person. Jesus promises that if we follow him, it won't all be a bed of flowers and ease. A friend of God is to be an enemy of the world. The very message that Jesus saves by default proclaims that the world and its system is flawed. If the world had been just fine, if it had been without sin, Jesus would not have needed to come to die in our place. But the world is broken. It's full of sinful people who daily transgress each other and a holy God. Jesus came to break the bonds of sin, but the world wants nothing to do with him. He tells them that they are living in sin and calls them to repentance. And so, they persecuted him. In the second half of verse 19, Jesus explains more why the world hates us. True disciples are not of this world. Our election, Christ's choosing, has changed our very nature. We have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Human adoption may have effects on someone's personality, but spiritual adoption changes nature. We are no longer of this world. The world is dead in its trespasses and sin, but God who is rich in mercy and out of his great love for made us alive to Christ. The world loves its own, but it hates those who are not of the world. The world system, as ruled by Satan, would rather keep men in darkness and punish those who dare cast any light into their darkness. When Jesus walked the earth as the ultimate light, the world hurled all of its fury at him and rejoiced at the cross, only to realize that the cross was where he won his true victory. They thought they had extinguished the light, but when Jesus arose, he ignited an endless torch. You see, the cross wasn't a secondary purpose of Jesus coming to earth, as you'll hear some teach. That was his primary purpose. In 1 John, again, John wrote that the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ has chosen us, the redeemed out of the world, to make us like him. And because we are not of this world, it hates us. But Jesus' encouragement for his disciples come from the fact that it really isn't them that the world hates, but rather Jesus. When Jesus' true disciples began to cast his light into dark places and start acting like him, that's when the world violently reacts. As his servants, we are to expect the same treatment that Christ endured. In verse 20, Jesus reminds the disciples of something he said over in chapter 13. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, there he was applying it to their humility. But just as the master served with humility, so too should the servant. In so doing, the servant can expect to receive the condemnation of the world. Jesus calls for his disciples to die to their own desires and be more concerned with the cares of others, and in so doing, the world revolts. If our Lord died a criminal's death for our redemption, how can we expect to be treated any differently? Read the book of Acts this week and watch how the disciples reacted. It's like they expected to be treated like Jesus was. And in many cases, they actually suffered worse than he did. But the servant is not greater than his master. In fact, the apostle Paul, while he was in prison for the final time, 
wrote to young Timothy that all who would live godly will suffer persecution. To walk with Christ is to invite the exact same treatment that he had. Whatever happens to his disciples happens because of their relationship with him. He told the apostles in verse 21 that they would endure hostility on the account of his name. The world's rejection and hatred of us is not a rejection of us personally. They treat it that way. Sometimes we think it's that way, but it's not. Ultimately, it's a rejection of Jesus. We should understand that hatred and hostility comes because of our association with Christ. And Jesus even goes a little bit further in giving the reason. He says they do it because they don't know him who sent me. So willful ignorance of God leads to a hatred for him. The rebellion that is so ingrained in our human nature dates all the way back to the fall and relentlessly opposes anything that reveals its true identity as antithetical to all that God is. As sinners, man is perfectly happy to reside in darkness and will fight anyone to the death who dares to shine a light into the darkness. But notice in verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Hating Jesus means hating God the Father. Repeatedly throughout John, Jesus has made it clear that he is God, that he and the Father are one. And so to reject Jesus is to reject God. In Jesus' speech, God's words were heard. In Jesus' works, God's activity was seen. And in Jesus, God himself was seen. Because Jesus is God, because the Father is revealed in Jesus, there is no other way to God but Jesus Christ. Rejecting him means rejecting God. Inversely, to love Jesus is to love God. Notice verse 17 of chapter 15. I know it was last week. But Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. And true disciples are known for their love for other disciples. The world hates true disciples, and true disciples are known by the world because they love the things the world hates. Most notably, our Lord Jesus Christ and his followers. In verses 22 and 24, Jesus makes a couple of statements that might be easy to gloss over at times. Jesus' coming did not mean that the people were sinless before he came. His coming added to their guilt. By rejecting the revealed Messiah, especially as ones who should have known the Father, those who rejected him incur more guilt than if they had never heard. And as a church, we should be very mindful of this. Do the things that we do truly proclaim Christ? Or do they tame his glory such that those who are regularly with us aren't truly exposed to the Christ of the cross? For someone to be regularly exposed to the Bible and the gospel only to reject it, it would be far worse on Judgment Day than if he had never heard. Friends, mere knowledge of Jesus is not enough to save. Satan and the demons know him full well. 
to see light and not use it, to possess knowledge and yet not turn it into practice, will end in eternal judgment. So friend, if you've grown up around the Bible, if you've heard the gospel many times, but never responded to Jesus' call, please hear him today. You can bring him all your sin, all your shame, all your guilt. He will give you all of his righteousness in exchange. Yes, the world's going to hate you. But what is that in comparison to Jesus? If you reject him and harden your heart, judgment will come. Will today be the day that we finally heed his call? And as Jesus continues, he adds to the Pharisees' guilt by pointing out that this hatred from the Jews is actually in fulfillment of their own law. As the perfect person, he lived the perfect life. What was there not to love about him? But it's so simple that we often overlook it. Their hatred for him came as a result of the fact that his very words, his very actions highlighted their guilt and their sin. In Psalm 35 and again in Psalm 69, it was foretold that Jesus would be hated without a cause. Based solely on his actions and life, there really wasn't anything to hate him for. I mean, what did he do wrong except reveal sin? And men really love their sin. Humankind will do anything to keep it and to hide it. It only took one generation after the fall for religious persecution to be seen. Cain, who, as John said, was of his father the devil, killed his own brother out of a hatred toward Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. A lot of religious persecution is done in the name of God. Religious zeal alone is no proof of a sound Christian. Not all zeal is right. It may be zeal without knowledge. But religious zeal should be preceded by a right understanding of God the Father as revealed through His Son, Jesus Christ. Many people throughout church history have done things claiming to be doing them for God. You look at the Spanish Inquisition of the 1500s or many a sermon that were actually preached at a martyr's death. Saul the Pharisee was stoning Christians in the name of God. But Jesus said that many on that great judgment day will say, but Lord, look at all the works that we've done in your name. And sadly, what does he say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. Friends, where does our zeal come from? hope that it's driven by a desire to know Christ, his cross, and to make him known. And then in verse 26, we move to the promise of Jesus, the promise of the helper from Jesus. So in light of all of this hatred and hostility, we're tempted to throw in our towel and walk away. It's hard. Nobody wants to be hated. No one wants to be an outcast. But in this discourse, Jesus is giving anchors for troubled hearts. They have their love for each other. They have his warnings of what's to come. 
And now he's going to send a helper to guide them and assist them on this mission to proclaim his name to all the earth. The title helper was, is interesting. Helper doesn't typically do things on his own. The Holy Spirit helps Christians. He doesn't audibly speak. For him to work, he needs a voice. And then through that voice, he works as the great heart surgeon, cutting out hearts of stone to implant hearts of flesh. Notice the progression there in, in verse 20, actually in this passage here, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Back in verse 21, the Father sent Jesus. And then in verse 26, the Father and the Ascended Son together send the Holy Spirit. And together, the three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, send the disciples to bear witness about Jesus with the Spirit aiding true disciples as they fulfill this mission that he has given them. All of the Holy Spirit's tasks and responsibility come from the fact that he is to bear witness to Jesus. We'll see that as we skip down to 16.4b there at the end of it. So Peter and Thomas had earlier asked, where was Jesus going? And so this statement from Jesus about Nobody asks me where I'm going. It can seem a little confusing. But if you look back at their questions, you really see that they were more concerned about themselves than they were about their master. They didn't really care what the answer he gave so much as they were protesting the fact that he was leaving them. And in stark contrast to this, and telling them already twice not to let their hearts be troubled, in verse 5, Jesus said that sorrow has filled their hearts. But Jesus promises them that it would be for their good for him to leave. For unless he leaves, the helper cannot come. The Holy Spirit is the reason for Jesus leaving. We saw this back in 14, chapter 14. By his returning to the Father, we lose Christ with us bodily to gain Christ in us. If Christ had stayed in the flesh, he would be bound by flesh just like we are, stuck in time and space. But yet, as the Spirit, he can be with us in multiple places and multiple Christians around the world. The Spirit could not come until Christ had been glorified. And where was his ultimate glorification? There on the cross. The cross was absolutely critical to Jesus' life. It was the very purpose for why he actually came. And in verse 8 through 11, we see the Spirit's responsibility to the world. A lot of times we think that it's our responsibility when we see someone doing something wrong, that it's our job to be the one who convicts, that it's our job to go tell them how wrong they really are. But that's really the Spirit's responsibility. It is our responsibility to go and speak, but it's not our responsibility to truly convict. We can speak convicting words, or we can speak words in such a way that help them understand that they're wrong, but it's really and ultimately the Holy Spirit's responsibility and his role to convict them. Jesus says that he convicts the world of sin 
and righteousness and judgment. Its sin reveals its inadequate understanding of righteousness and how certain its judgment will be. One theologian said that the sin is that sin is the world state as it is, righteousness as it ought to be, and judgment as it must and shall be. He will convict the world of sin because its understanding of sin is wrong. As we've already seen, their rejection of Jesus added to their sin guilt. If they did believe in God the Father, they would have believed in Jesus. But their unbelief brings condemnation and willful ignorance of their need. And the Holy Spirit works in spite of that intentional rejection, pressing home their need to repent and recognize the gracious offering being made to them. He convicts the world of righteousness because their idea of righteousness is skewed by their sinfulness. Just as Jesus was the standard or is the standard of righteousness and was going to leave, it was necessary for someone else to continue that work of calling out sin and righteousness. And that task now fell to the disciples in whom the Holy Spirit dwelt and to us in whom the Holy Spirit dwells to speak and use those words to convict. And then he convicts the world of the judgment to come. On the cross, Christ triumphed eternally, and the rule of this world now stands condemned by it. And the world desperately needs to hear that it too is condemned and needs to repent and turn. Continuing again with the work of the Holy Spirit and the true disciple, Jesus builds on the promises from back in chapter 14. There, the Holy Spirit enabled them to remember the things that Jesus had already taught. Now, he's going to build on that and teach them all things. So the Holy Spirit will take the revelation of God through Jesus and fill out the revelation already being made in Christ. He's not adding anything new, but rather is building on Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection not additional revelation, as a lot of people today want to argue, but rather it's revelation in light of Christ. And in verses 14 and 15, he only takes what Christ has and declares that to us. And by their divine unity, whatever Christ has is also from the Father. See, the Holy Spirit is perfectly content to be the shy member of the Trinity. Shining a spotlight forever on Christ. And he draws on the riches of Christ, as Paul said, and reveals that glory to the disciples. For apart from the quickening work of the Holy Spirit, the full import of spiritual truth cannot be grasped. Jesus' warnings of hostility and Persecution have certainly come true. Ten of the eleven men that he's speaking to are martyred for their witness. Before they did, they all endured ridicule and scoffers and slanderers. Yeah, in two chapters, they're all going to run and hide, but the change that you see after the Holy Spirit comes on them in Acts is remarkable. Boldly proclaiming Christ. They're remembering these promises. They even warned their own disciples. They remind us through their writings in the rest of the, Old, of the New Testament that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Let's pray. Father, you are truly great. We thank you so much for your shepherding heart in this passage to warn us that as we live missionally that there's going to be hard times, that people really aren't going to like us. Father, help us to stay focused on the riches and the glory of Christ. For Father, if we stay focused on the riches and glory of Christ, these mild afflictions of today are but for a moment. Father, help us to rest in you. Help us to live by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.